everyone and welcome to the Junior Alec podcast, a first in a series of podcast conversations this year where we discuss responsible behavior in cyberspace, implementation of cyber norms, and possible roles and responsibilities in this regard of different stakeholder groups and actors. For those who might not be familiar, Geneva Dialog is an international process led by the Swiss Federal Department of Foreign Affairs and implemented by Diplo Foundation in partnership with Centre for Digital Trust. I am your host today. My name is Anastasia Kazakova. I'm a cyber diplomacy knowledge fellow at Diplo, and I'm thrilled to learn today from two great experts with so many years of professional experiences behind the backs who will help us today unpack more about vulnerabilities in digital products risks that might come from vulnerable code, and I'm also going to ask them why users should even care about security and cybersecurity these days. So our guests today are Serge Dross, Senior Advisor in the Swiss Department of Foreign Affairs Digitalization Division, as well as Vice Chair of the Board of Directors of FIRST. FIRST is a global forum of incident response and security teams. And also with us today, Eustace Filgelis, Product Security Lead up at Broadarm. Thank you so much, Serge and Eustace, uh, for being here today. Um, I'm going to be today in a completely in the shoes of a regular user, which actually I am as well. And just going straight to the first question, I wonder why actual vulnerabilities in digital products bad. We see lots of the media headlines right every day. Um, the vulnerabilities grow uh, each year. The different vulnerabilities are discovered, reported in the devices, in the apps that we use. But I bet many people just scroll over the, this news. Um, they might be not too relevant for them or too technical. And I wonder if the vulnerabilities are actually that irrelevant for us as the users. And when vulnerabilities actually become more relevant and um, we have really bad consequences for us as the users. Well, thanks, Nastia, for uh having me and, and use us here. Let me maybe jump in on the first question on why should everybody care really about vulnerabilities? There's kind of two parts to, to these questions, I feel. The first part is really about yourself. It's about the very users. In in the past 20 years, since I've been working in this field of cybersecurity, I've often heard the term, oh, there's nothing I have to hide. There's nothing that, that is valuable to the, to the bad guys that I have and nothing could be further from the truth. And there's things like your money that's available through your computer. So people tend to rob banks and if you have vulnerabilities on your systems, they can abuse them to actually get at your money. Maybe you say the money is going to be replaced by the bank, have a very generous bank. There's things that cannot be replaced. For example, all your digital pictures of your family, of your kids growing up. Uh, maybe there's information you want to be shared like uh, your medical history, which may sit on your devices. And in fact, that is exactly what a lot of the criminals are behind. To make matters worse, if you actually a civil rights activist in, in one of the many countries where civil liberties aren't guaranteed, and sometimes even in those countries, authoritarian regimes and, and over-service kind of civil officers may start spying on you, and they often do this by exploiting uh, vulnerabilities. I guess the most famous example of that is the Pegasus spyware, which was sold to a multitude of, of, of shady users who then really terribly abused this, sometimes leading to people being killed. 
And yes, normal users probably not going to get this, but it's just a part in the chain. So that's the one thing. The other thing is that if you're not really sure that new devices are safe, you will start losing trust in these devices. I mean, who's going to do online shopping? Who's going to do online banking? Who's going to use the internet for anything remotely sensitive if you cannot be sure that your data is trust? So I think if we have vulnerabilities in products, it undermines the trust in cyberspace. And that's something that we want to avoid because cyberspace really, at the end of the day, is a great place to bring people there. Nice intro there, Serge. Uh, and first of all, before I go any further, thank you, Nastia, for, for having us. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm again, I work at Proton, and and really, in my opinion, vulnerabilities do uh, impact us users. The, the Serge mentioned the Pegasus thing, did I? but even before Pegasus, uh, you know, we've been being inundated with ransomware, you know, and, and things like that. And if you've ever been hit by that, it's pretty bad. So it takes over your computer or the device that you use to communicate with people. And then, then they ask for money in return and you have, and they're criminals. So you have no guarantee to get to it. But, uh, but you know, this, but, uh, and that's one of the main reasons why we have to be concerned about vulnerabilities. Historically, you have to remember the devices that we use and the whole infrastructure for the internet was built with the best intentions in mind. You know, when, when CERN scientists invented, um, you know, the World Wide Web, it was to help people communicate together. And that was the goal. It was simply to have people talk to each other. And we, and over the years, we built on top of it. And, and of course, the concern becomes that, uh, that, that if there is a bug or a problem with the way that it's built, some people like who, have, uh, who, who may want to hurt us will find out how they can leverage those type of issues. So, so, so then I think that's the big concern. So, so I think it really, you know, it really is a consumer specific issue that we all should be caring about running high quality products when we're using our internet, when you're using cell phones, when we're ordering caps and to make certain that the companies behind these products are legitimate and that they're doing everything possible to keep us and our information safe. Thank you so much. I resonate a lot with what you both said, especially that the trust part, that cyberspace is actually such a really great place to enjoy so many benefits, but still there's a dangerous that we should be aware of. Um, but I also wonder, again, as a user, retrospectively, Vulnerability is that something exists for many years, right? And I'm curious how the companies and the private actors and the industry um, learning to be better dealing with vulnerabilities. So if you could share, given your experiences, what has been the path historically industry to deal with vulnerabilities and still what are the key challenges for companies these days to ensure the best security for the users? Well, it seems to me that the private sector learned dealing with vulnerabilities the hard way. It's uh, 20 years ago, nobody was taking this stuff seriously. Everybody was saying kind of like, the, who would ever do something like this when, when you told them somebody's exploiting a vulnerability? And, uh, and I think the organization I got hit most really was Microsoft leading to, to this really still worthwhile memo of Bill Gates about why the company needs to transform and, uh, and I think it's a very, it's a really interesting memo to read because it's not about security is really important. It's about people will lose trust in our products and they'll stop buying these products. And 
And so Microsoft was one of the first companies to really start. And then we had all these wars with other companies saying, oh, our products are safe until they were told, cannot demonstrate it otherwise. And still today, I think we have we have a lot of tech companies, especially the, the kind of the new kids on the block, all these Internet of Things company that are in a startup mode where they want to grow fast and they don't have time for security that are terribly bad in dealing with, with vulnerabilities. And uh, I think the big players really understood the rules of the games and they react quite quickly and respons- responsibly. Um, so no complaints about that. But many of the new new organizations, unless they really have, have security kind of on the front, tend to make the same mistakes that uh, that many of the today established organizations made 20 years ago. And that's to some extent a bit saddening that we have to kind of repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And now it's not your laptop or your desktop that has a vulnerability, it's your fridge, it's your fish tank, it's your light bulb and whatnot. And then people come and tell me, but who who would like to hack my light bulb? And well, nobody's really interested in your light bulb. But they may be interested in actually getting into your internal network through your light bulb. And that's exactly what's happening. So it, it's an interesting world we live here. You know, in many ways, you know, the, um, the promises of technology has not simplified our lives. It was supposed to make our jobs easier. That was like one of the goals of the internet and computer automation in general. Uh, and in many ways, it made simple tasks better, you know, um, the, and, and more and made us more efficient because of that. You know, the you know, if you think of it's a world we live today, we have Alexis and Siri talking with us. We have Chat GPT who's able to rewrite our documents and take our notes and make them presentable. Those are all great advances of them, but uh but they're also very powerful and and it's something that you have to watch out for. So you know the you know the yeah, you know, I saw some you know, some great examples on people using ChatGPT to cause uh, negative impacts. When it first came out, um, people were able to quickly figure out how to train uh, train the thought process on a ChatGPT to cut to influence the results. And we were able to do things, or people were able to do things like uh, like give harmful or derogatory responses to common questions that somebody might ask. It's you know, it's it's all the way you you, you want to utilize the machines. But let let's step back a little bit more and figure out how do we get there. Uh, you, you know, the, the the World Wide Web in many ways was an open environment. You know, when we were designing cars, when we were designing planes and industrial systems, we basically had a very, very tight bar. You know, planes weren't supposed to fall out of the sky. Bar, you know, you know, cars aren't supposed to be running off the road, you know, and supposed to have safety mechanisms on that. There were no guardrails when software was being built. And the guardrails came afterwards, and that's in some ways what we're doing, what we're trying to catch up with, and and what um, what bad actors do, you know, be they them criminal enterprises, be the nation states who are trying to update secrets, uh, you know, for industrial or for, for foreign governments. What they loved about vulnerabilities is that they kind of gave them a backdoor on the ability to use the device, you know, and, and well, and you might ask, well, who are these people who are thinking about that? If you ever have a neighbor or a friend who would love to take apart the toaster oven or, or, or disassemble a watch, 
that those are the first steps in a person who becomes a great security researcher or a hacker because they're interested in how things work. So, and when you find out how things work, you can find out where, hey, wait a second, something's not working the way it's supposed to be. And, and really, that's what uh, vulnerability is in a product. It means that something's not working the way it's supposed to be, and then a bad actor can possibly be able to take advantage of it. And that's the, you know, that's one of the, the key parts about vulnerabilities is that, and that's why uh, uh, commercial enterprises and the digital uh, people have to be concerned about it. Cause, cause, uh, because although we have the best of intentions that everywhere I've ever worked, we always think of a customer and the planet in mind. A simple bug or a simple thing that could be abused in the wrong way will have negative consequences. And it could be to the individual, it could be to your company, it could be to the planet. So, so we want to fix those things. And, and, we, and right now, in many ways, we're, we're putting those guardrails together um, for the internet. We're trying to make it a safer place as we're cruising, as, as everybody's using it. So it's a pretty, not, pretty exciting time to be in the, in the industry of software and everything. It's good that you both mentioned the tourister and IT things. I just recall the, my personal experience when I was last time at IKEA, I noticed so many new cool things. Uh, I don't know if I call them IT, but actually new audio systems, wireless that might be connected to the internet. And they're so cheap, much cheaper than the specialized electronic magazine. And of course, when the jack is so exciting and the cheap, I must admit that I did not think thoroughly of security features built in. So I assume that many other people actually really do not think. But it's good that you mentioned that is actually there's a lot of still hidden downsides that we do not care as the humans is, but they're really real. The access that a red actress might have to personal data, to financial data, or to connect through possibly this um, poorly secure systems, which is always a case. Um, to other systems in your smart home. But I also still have the questions. Good also you mentioned about the best intentions. And I want to take a search why you mentioned that still companies make mistakes, still have vulnerabilities. And I wonder why actually still it still might be hard to deal with vulnerabilities promptly. What are the sort of the top challenges for different actors in the field? That's a really Good questions. It's a hard question to to kind of answer completely. But as again, I think there's several sides to this. One is that that writing software is not too difficult, but writing secure software is actually quite a bit of a challenge. And if you're a startup, you your initial kind of goal is speed. You wanna you wanna have a product that you can bring to the market. And a lot of these these kind of uh, new things are are coming to the market from little the market from little startups that hope and later to be bought by a big company. And so you don't really pay attention to this. And also, I think students today, computer science students and developers, they don't really learn secure development. They learn development. And I think that is something we could change. Universities should increasingly start teaching people writing secure software. And I mean, it's not rocket science. It's just a little more tedious and uh, I mean, it's like everything. Jotting down a couple of notes is, is, is easier than actually writing a nice document that, that is actually presentable. And maybe maybe the large language models are going to help us. So that's one part. But regardless of how good you developers are, 
you're always going to make mistakes because these systems are complex. They, they consist of, of components that, that interact in unforeseen ways. And that, of course, makes it really, really hard for, for suppliers uh, to produce secure software because they don't really know how the customers are going to use this. This is kind of leading us towards this whole thing about supply chains. Nobody today controls the full, the full tech stack that they actually deploy, not even the biggest companies such as Microsoft or Google. I mean, they all depend on, on third parties. Again, that's something you you just have to live with, and, and the you have to live with implies that you need mechanisms and processes to, to deal with vulnerabilities should they arise. And I think the increasingly companies start to understand that they need to do this properly, uh, and that starts with having a for example, security information available. If you find uh, a security vulnerability, how can you report it? There's still too many companies where you cannot report this and, and or where you kind of get accused of being a hacker and criminal when you report this. And of course, those things then uh, usually turn bad. But again, the bigger, the bigger companies, I think, all have programs where you can report this responsibly. Then you can go to the next step, and I'm pretty sure Eustace has much more to say you can actually actively invite people to look at security of your products and report them. That's what we call lock bounty programs. Um, but again, you see huge, a huge diversity in maturity in this space. There are some companies that do this really well. They spend tons of money. And there's others that just like if you if you try to phone them and, and tell them, hey, there's a security issue, they in the best of all cases, they look strange at you. In the worst of cases, they are actually start threatening you. And just remember that the Swiss government set out hundreds of, of traditional paper letters to companies telling them, you have a security problem. This wasn't about vulnerabilities most of the time. It was about unpatched or unfixed vulnerabilities. Can you imagine that in this day and age, you still have to write paper letters, half of which get ignored? I find this quite disturbing. Boy, have you moved to Switzerland, man? I, you know, this country loves paper. Everything that, that that goes on, be it banking or my apartment, everything, it's all, you have to sign a paper, you have to get a document in the mail, you know, so it's, it, and it's interesting, but that works. You know, I think back to my, my mother and father used to pay their insurance with a little ticket every single month and a check that they put in the mail. Guess what? That that's that was secure because it, it it you know it required the post office and the post office is it is reliable. So it, so that was kind of neat. Uh, I, I want to agree with the first of all with what Serge says. You know, the, you have so many great insights, and it's an honor to be speaking with you here. Um, you know, you know, but uh, it, it's it's an ecosystem problem, and it's growing so big that no one understands it all. You know, I I spent most of my career working at Microsoft in the Windows uh, environment, and and the and it's so complex that very few people understand the majority of it. You can count you can count the people on one hand who are the original architects who are able to really delve in and understand every single component in such a complex environment. And even they, you know, no longer, you know, they rely on many people to make certain that they're educated and up to date on the changes that are happening there. So it's it's very very difficult to keep in uh, to keep abreast of what's changing, and also to be able to respond. The the 
you know, you, you mentioned, you know, um, the organizations working together, Surge, and, and you know, and Surge um, is, is uh, very much involved in FIRST, which is, stands for Incident Response. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a great organization, and, and many, many large companies are involved in it. And the goal is to communicate together so that we can pick up, help address the bigger issues that, uh, that may impact us and keep us secure. And it's, you know, it's, it's how to respond to, to concerns. Um, Serge mentioned the bug bounty program. There's way more proactive things going on today than that. Uh, and really, uh, the bug bounty in many ways is a way to invite the community into how you into helping us create great products. Uh, in addition to that, one of the, the great things that came out of Europe, and Microsoft was originally against this, and, and ever since Satya Nadell has been their CEO, they embraced it, is open source software. It turns out that if you put your software out in public and there's a problem with how it's written, people are going to fix the product. People are uh, good people, kind people, I'm going to say, are going to say, hey, this routine or the way that you're calculating this is incorrect. You may want to fix that. And those suggestions get into it. Um, and, and really, uh, for that, and that's, you know, it's a double-edged core code. It, it adds a dependency to our database. We make our information available open source. We get let other companies use it so we get more users, so we're getting more usage out of it. Um, but then if a problem is found or if there's an exploit within it, more people have to respond to it. And that whole area is called vulnerability management and dependency chains. And they've been in the news in the past couple, uh, in the past year or so, for large type of um, vulnerabilities that have impacted lots of people. You know, the, the, so, so, so yeah, you, it makes it more complex, so. Uh, thank you so much for such a really comprehensive overview. I think that's super insightful. Um, but I also wonder that, of of course, that's predictable that our companies themselves not expected to eliminate all the potential security issues, right? So there are other actors that might support, and you already mentioned about researchers, the technical community, uh, the bug bounty programs that might actually help coordinate efforts between them. Um, and I wonder that the researchers, while looking for vulnerabilities and um, conducting vulnerability research, what will be considered as the ethical or not ethical? What actually makes vulnerability research more ethical so that they could be more trusted by companies, for instance, to open up the systems and thus to be more on alert that potential vulnerabilities might be found and that's more security could be ensured for users. So Serge is the one who brought me to Proton, by the way, and it really was to, uh, to deal with a lot of the interactions that you're, you're talking about here. Um, yeah, the, the the difference between a good a hacker or an ethical hacker and a bad one, it's a fine line because uh, like human beings, everybody has attitudes. An ethical hacker is one who's going to be working with the industry to create better products and to make our products and lives more secure. And, and the way that they do that is through a good coordinated disclosure process, which is one of the, the basis for for being able to communicate, uh, to, you know, uh, how to properly find an issue. So, so a, a company such as Proton, you know, Microsoft, Google, we have uh, publicly available security response centers and bug bounty programs that any researcher can search, that can find, and then contact us through the appropriate means. 
If those don't work, if you're a smaller company, when I find bugs on like, you know, other products that we're using, you know, I'll try telling them to their support team if they have a support alias or something like that. So, so it's one way is how do you communicate them? And then the other way is how do you disclose it and how do you get credit for it? So one of the, the, the big thing about bug bounty hunters is yes, they get paid a award for when they submit an issue to us, but uh, it, from a practical sense, uh, a really good qualified bug bounty has a day job. They're working as a security researcher at Swiss.com. They're working as as a, an engineer on in an aerospace build up planes or in an aerospace company or something like that. But they are also curious because they're the guys who took apart the toaster oven as little kids and they found issues with the products that they're using. So they have a way to report it. And, and, and really, it's the responsible disclosure that becomes key. And what that means is that you're going to be, instead of, instead of taking credit and, and going public with your findings right away, um, you know, which, which some hackers love to do, by the way, yeah, you know, because it builds up their reputation. Hey, look at the bugs that I've found. They're really, really complicated and they're real life issues. Um, instead of doing that, they are being a little more ethical and working with the community to resolve the issues. And and some of these issues are very complex. They can take you know years to require. They can impact hundreds of companies. And imagine like when you're playing a, a game where you have to have make 100 moves at the same time. It's not one move. It's not me saying, "Hey, you have a bug, Microsoft." It's it's me telling Microsoft that there is a bug. Oh, by the way, Apple and Google is also impacted by the same bug. And, and then, by the way, because of that, every single enterprise company is going to have to be able to fix it at the same time. Otherwise, once that, once that issue becomes known publicly, this is the other half of it, you know, that you have to keep the entire industry up to date and current. It, it, because as soon as you go public, as soon as Microsoft releases that patch Tuesday or whatever, the, the fixes for security issues, the bad guys are going to reverse engineer those fixes and they're going to incorporate them into their attack techniques. And they're going to go ahead and get anyone who's not patched. They're going to be looking for people who, who weren't up to date with their security fixes and things like that. So, so to summarize, that's the difference, really. It's like an ethical hacker was to work with the, the industry, with the ecosystems, and with human beings to make us safer, while an unethical hacker wants to either, you know, either monetize it for personal uh, the, the, the issues that they found via the dark web or by selling it to nation states, maybe working for nation states also, you know, because it's an espionage type of, um, you know, ex exploits can be used in espionage and so on. Well, you know, or, you know, or they're doing it for self-fulfillment because they can say, hey, look what I found. And I'll, I'll make the whole the planet at risk to be able to show up my, my capabilities. Uh, I think a lot of there's also not many cases that I've seen where, where people were actually well-meaning, but just overstepped certain lines. I remember that. Uh, a very long time ago, there was a, a fairly big vulnerability that, that my team at the time was, was kind of researching. And we were doing kind of investigations to figure out if our customers had problems or not. And, and what we did is we were essentially running so-called proof of concept code. So that means we were trying to exploit the vulnerability. But what we didn't consider is that this may have side effects. It's a, so if you start working with vulnerabilities, 
you use a product in a in a way that wasn't foreseen and quite often the consequences or the reaction of the system behind this is is unforeseen and the internet today is not only a website that's then going to disappear it may actually be a medical device that's going to may stop it may be a power supply that's going to kind of or a power grid that's going to go down and i feel it's very very important that uh but that security researchers are aware of the fact that uh that they can cause damage that they that they really take precautions and make sure they don't cause unwanted side effects in particular in systems where they haven't been invited to do so um it's there's often kind of like these comparisons where people say oh if uh it's it's uh if you don't lock your door and somebody tries to open the house then uh that's not okay or it's okay and and then some there's a discussion is this okay or not but i think i would go further and say this is more like people's trying to smash a window to see if it's secure and that certainly is not okay and the same holds in the internet i really feel that that security researchers not only should they kind of once they find a vulnerability disclose it responsibly they also should make sure that while finding these and while researching these they don't do additional damage the same goes actually on uh holds for journalists uh, I, i've seen cases where journalists were tipped off on on certain vulnerabilities and then and then they started to kind of proof of concept download information download very private and confidential information i think this is not a thing it's totally unethical just because you gra- can grab someone's i don't know health health files doesn't mean you should do it and and so there's a lot of things that that people that really are serious in this space should should think about and this is really like finding i don't know finding a box with really confidential stuff in there that that may have a lot of damage you want to be really careful you you may suddenly have a lot of power that uh that you need to de- to be able to deal with and and you need to do so in a way that minimizes harm uh, good points there, Serge, and for sure. But, you know, the, the, the guardrails, I'll call them, that companies use to, to protect ourselves from people overreaching like that, even if they had good intentions, are things like uh, a vulnerability disclosure policy. That's where we, we, and a safe harbor agreement. Those are like the legal, at the, at, at the legal entities and the rules around what ethical hacking is. And the company usually like a book owner or someone would divide them on our websites. And we have pages that say that so that, and we ask the ethical hackers not to overreach. You know, if you're researching our products, please don't bring them down and cause a denial of service. So that would be bad. If you find an issue before taking it further, please stop and report it to us and we'll, and we'll work with you to fix it and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, and again, it's, it, it's, you know, that's the fun part about the security business is you're working with very smart people and, you know, and, and learning about them and learning about their capabilities to try to improve our products, try to improve, you know, the posture in the world. And, and as we all know, it's like, why would it be bad if somebody accidentally broke our, you know, our heating systems or our electricity grid accidentally because they were looking for a bug? Well, listening to both of you, um, 
I may actually see in place disagree with me that um, the core challenge lies in the behavior of humans, right? And humans are complex. We as a humans is in, <laughs> increasingly complex. And to avoid this and what side effects, it's really difficult because it it's difficult to technically program what are the possibility and a variety of such side effects could be because it really lies in the behavior of social social creators as we are. Um, but the question about the big elephant in the room and search a little bit mentioned about the language models, do you believe that probably AI and machine learning have the potential to reduce vulnerabilities and help us to predict all this possibility of and what are side effects in using the digital products? So what's your take on that? That's a good question. I mean, who knows where we're artificial intelligence and machine learning is, is going to take us. I think it's personally, I don't really think we're going to get rid of box. It's uh, like everybody, every system or every that we develop is, is developed always based on assumptions that most of the time it's a bug occurs or quite often the bug occurs because these assumptions are wrong. And some of the assumptions are you kind of, you know what, what you have to make and you could work around, but then still like take buffer overflow. Buffer overflows work on the assumption that that a user has to supply some input and the input is only going to have certain lengths and nobody's going to type in more than that. That's the underlying assumption that, that gets violated. And why does it get violated? Because no sane person would do this except for a hacker and people forget this. Now, machine learning models, they're trained on, on kind of user data. So they may be susceptible to the same mistakes. Who knows? They may introduce new ones. Who knows? We just don't really know. And then there's always kind of the, the odd bug where you say, oh, this is really novel or it's, it's, it's systems that actually work properly that just once you bring them together, start developing kind of strange effects on you. That's not just happening in, in computer science and software development. You have to start with drugs too. It's you take two perfectly fine kind of drugs to treat two different uh, diseases. But when you put them together, uh, things go wrong. It's kind of like throwing Mentos into Coke. And so I don't think we're going to be unemployed any time soon. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not going to hurt that. I, you know, the, the an analogy I like to use, it, and, and the, the term is for, you know, it, and this is you should something you should do for any project you have, is do a basic threat model. And a threat model you know, answers, well, it's basically four questions you want to ask. What are you trying to do? What can possibly go wrong? What are you going to do about it? And then afterwards, hey, did we succeed? Did we find the problem? So you can apply that to anything. If I was going to build a fence in my backyard, the thread model would be like, hey, is the ground equal? Are the pieces of wood the same size that I'm making the fence out of? Uh, what happens to the water flow down the hill if, if you know, if, if I build a fence over here, am I going to interrupt that? And will there be flooding on one of the sides of the fence? You can ask like a hundred questions like that. And, and then once you solve those type of uh, questions, that then you can go ahead and say, hey, now I know what my, 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 what my design may implicate. But also the question that goes probably right, uh, close to this, and it's related, I think, to AI. I just read this morning the news uh, from the U.S. policymakers that is indeed the growing risk that AI might present. Um, so the governments need to be part of this 
ongoing developments in the discussion to make sure that the security ensured for the users and that the new fair rules are established. And I wanted to ask you a question as well about the government's role. Someone that, uh, as you are, you've seen how the entire industry has been, has been developing for the past years. So what do you, your expectations could be in this regard from the growing interest of governments to stop in this area? And I'm particularly looking at the Chinese rules for vulnerability reporting uh, and a proposal for the European Union or the Cyber Resilience Act that uh, which might mandate the vulnerability reporting to the EU cybersecurity agency. And maybe you also have any thoughts how far the government's actually expected to step in in this area. So, I mean, this is a really wide, wide area. We have this talk because there is a a norm by the United Nations that says that governments should be concerned about responsible treatment or, or coordination of vulnerabilities. And so I think that's good news because it means that all the states in the United Nations kind of accept the fact that vulnerabilities are a bad thing and they need to be treated responsibly. But what does that mean and how do you implement this locally? This is something that, that varies very much from state to state. For example, uh, Switzerland's feeling is, is that vulnerabilities are really bad because they introduce, they undermine trust in the internet and they, they introduce instabilities in, in kind of the global fabric of cyberspace. So Switzerland kind of promises to never kind of keep a, a vulnerability secret. So if you report a vulnerability to Swiss government, it will make sure that it gets reported to the the respective manufacturer that it gets fixed in a responsible way. And that is actually an offer to a lot of hackers that, that are afraid to deal directly with organizations or to people who can't find the proper, the proper person to talk to in a private company. The Swiss government will, will kind of help you there. That's not the view that all governments have. There's uh, governments in particular from the bigger countries, in particular US and, and UK, who, who reserve the right to at least keep vulnerabilities well, they discover themselves secret. Uh, they've, US and the UK have uh, documented this in what's called the vulnerabilities equities process, where they kind of lay out all the thoughts they're going to make about when they keep this. It's kind of a balance between uh, What's the damage going to be? Is it already known and stuff like this to kind of, can we gain a digital advantage to this? Again, Switzerland feels there's a lot of things unclear and, and states still need to come create more clarity on what this means. How do we, what's the role of the state? What's, how should this norm that says you need to deal with vulnerabilities in a responsible way, how does this need to be implemented? There still needs to be discussions let. When it comes to regulation, which is something that, that especially the European Union really loves to do, uh, again, Switzerland, Switzerland is a country that kind of is very hesitant regulating. We feel you should, should have a, as little regulation as, as necessary. In fact, we typically say to the private sector, why don't you try to fix this problem? If you don't do so, then we may consider regulation. And so regulation is something that only is supposed to come out if there's a danger of the private sector who runs and produces all of this stuff is not working out. 
what a regulation often tends to do is that it it more regulates the the how than the what. So it it tries to tell the private sector how it's supposed to do things, how it's supposed to develop uh, secure products, rather than what the expectations are, namely that customers and users don't have a problem. And I think uh, I think if you try to tell the private sector on how they should fix the problem, that's that's not going to work out because for that it's far too private private sector and cyberspace and cyber technology is far too dynamic. I mean, there's not a week without new technology coming out. Who who half a year ago would have thought that ChatGPT would have such an impact? Nobody. And we haven't even started thinking about how to regulate this. So I think regulation is, is a very, very tricky thing. And I think good regulation is regulation that uh, kind of specifies an end result because that really is, is what states should be doing. They should they should think what is it that citizens want because technically that's what politicians are elected for to represent their citizens. I'm going to kind of promote this rather than tell people how they have to do six. It's no state would tell a car manufacturer how how an engine has to work technically. They're going to say it, it must not use more than that much fuel. It must not produce toxic poison shouldn't explode but it, it's not telling them how they should achieve this and I think that is something that's really hard wow yeah thank you Serge that's uh you know this is your expertise you know I'm just the layman reading the same newspaper articles that Nastia was reading you know you know and, and uh, the U.S. government did say that they're going to put together the U.S. Senate to be exact Chuck Schumer that they're going to put together uh, a, a boy some sort of policy for AI. At least they're thinking about putting together a framework on where to take it. And it's very difficult because the the, the concepts are so abstract for for the the new artificial intelligent technology. I, I much prefer the the term machine learning. You know, because really that's what it is. Where that's you know computers will never be sentient beings, and they will never be able to think for themselves. However, they are able, you can train them to come up with outcomes. And that's what you want to build the, the guardrails or the rules about is, is how, what, how, and what do you use to train these things? And will there be models that, um, that will be, uh, uh, become industry standards? That's the, where I see that happening. You know, you, you don't want to train, uh, you know, uh, you know, what would be a good example? Well, you, you don't want to teach the computer derogatory words to put words in, you know, to, to, you know, the slang words or something like that into government documents. You want to say, you want to say only use words that have are officially described within that. For example, in the Air Transport Association 30 years ago, even longer, they have books called the Simple English Language. Every single maintenance manual for fixing an aircraft can, has to use these 110 words so that everybody can understand it. So I, I picture in the, for machine learning and for building and training languages, you're gonna put similar requirements saying that, you know, that you will not train machines and you will not use training that, that does things that will cause harm. So what that is, you know, we'll have to define. Of course, the, of course the bad guys are doing the opposite. They're using machine learning to see what, what damage they can cause or what information they can glean. 
So, so, so that's, that's the other concern that we have is that we're not the only ones playing with artificial intelligence. You know, the bad guys are also looking at it to see how they can leverage that new technology for their benefit. And I see that you both, um, sorry, yeah. Yes, and maybe to add to the challenges of regulation, is, uh, and you just mentioned that a lot of software is open source, and I think that is a challenge for, for policymakers and regulators. I mean, this is true for artificial intelligence, by the way. I mean, most of these models nowadays are available in open source versions because open source is not really owned by anyone. So the traditional thing of kind of like, you build the system so you're responsible doesn't really apply because what people say is, I love this piece of software. You can use it at your own risk. I'm not taking any responsibility. That's just a pet project of mine. And, uh, and how do you put this in? How do you regulate this? This is this is really hard, and uh, I don't think anyone really knows the solution about this. And I don't think the solution is a is a regulation. I think the solution is actually more towards working with the community, working with people that are heavily involved. And I think states still have to come to grips with on how how they want to do this. Obviously, it's not the state's job to kind of fix every every piece of software that somebody has written in on a rainy Sunday. On the other hand, uh, maybe there should be mechanisms that, that encourage this and that make it possible. And, and it's also a question that, that I think the private sector needs to ask. Uh, is it really okay to kind of use the free open source software in the, in the free sense of free beer and never give anything back and then cry out to governments, oh, you have to do something because there's a security vulnerability? These are difficult discussions. And I think they're discussions that go very much beyond um, kind of technical discussions. And and so here is my, my challenge to the technical community. Technical community needs to come to grips with the fact that probably some regulation is needed, uh, that their technology may cause a lot of problems. And that technology is many things, but certainly it's not a neutral thing that doesn't do any good good or bad. It's technology influences how society works, vulnerabilities, badly written software influences how society works. And we have to come to with just this huge multi-stakeholder ecosystem. And a good point there. Open source does try to have uh, people is people do step up and become maintainers. That's like the, the word for it. And like for for example, Proton maintains the the Go crypto libraries, and and it's really exciting for the means I get to work with very very smart people, and that, that's a ton of fun for me. Uh, but you're right; it's like, what do you do if something if if the maintainer goes away, or what do you do if the maintainer is Facebook and Facebook doesn't want to fix the bug because they have their own workaround for it? You know, there's it's all this other stuff that gets in there. In any event, there's always there is room for uh, technology. There is room for government to help us with the guardrails. I think I think that's given. Otherwise, you know, otherwise there's a uh, boy. We'll all be falling off the cliff at some time without those guardrails there. Um, but I see that you're both actually really good at aligning in viewing the government's role as someone that needs to set up the expectations rather than precisely reading down, write down the how the process should be made. Um, but uh, I think also regarding the open source, there's definitely already lots of the discussions going on, um, at least in the US, after the famous vulnerability happened last year, right? And the open source log for J 
So that might actually, that is already going, uh, as I see, as a combined effort of the community and the policymakers of different kinds uh, from different agencies. So perhaps that model might be also exported to the other jurisdictions, to the other communities, and make sure that at least they also stay connected so somehow to ensure that the end result will be interoperable across different um, jurisdictions as a result. But uh, let's see how it goes with the current proposals um, in Europe and maybe any other similar proposals to regulate the security and digital products also will come up sooner. Uh, so if that will be ensured that there's no further fragmentation between them. Um, but Yusuf, you also made a good point. Um, about actually to my last question about the responsibility. And I wanted to ask, um, what do you feel about the, the liability? Should the manufacturers be liable for vulnerable code and digital products? And if users can expect remedies, if vulnerabilities exist in digital products? The short answer is it depends on, on what the vulnerability is and how they respond to it, to be quite honest. so. So, you know, when I, you know, boy, what, what is the biggest, uh, the worst thing happening right now in the United States? It is the opioid addiction that's being exacerbated by fentanyl. And, and in my opinion, certain pharmaceutical families have gotten away scot-free with a $6 billion payment with admitting no culpability to causing all of that damage. You know, that, that, that is a bad example of uh, oh, um, what what responsibility and what responsible uh, companies should do, and what responsible governments should do. Um, if there's a vulnerability uh, in, in a software product that impacts a person's well-being, if 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 my Tesla brakes fail and when they should have been working, Tesla should be responsible for that. If uh, if my software code, um, you know, isn't running correctly. Uh, you know, you know, and it is returning improper results. You know, we, it, it, in my opinion, you know, it, we should be somewhat liable to it. The, the the difference becomes on what the nature of the problem is and what the impact is. But I also believe that the response of the company should be critical in deciding whether they're culpable or not. Because, because as Serge mentioned, and we know, as we all know, you know, humans make mistakes. Uh, there are. There are code bugs being introduced when we write codes, you know, and there are external factors that could could make things obsolete. So, 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 it, it like for example, in the in the Windows environment, you know, we're not going to fix a security issue in Windows NT4 that hasn't been supported in 20 years, you know. The, however, if someone reports a, a significant issue, it should be fixed within a reasonable amount of time via coordinated disclosure. And if there's economic impact because the company does not respond appro appropriately, they should be punished because that's one of the that's one of the sticks that a government has is that is is that if we're gonna have uh, products out there and we're gonna want to have them to be safe, we, we're gonna insist that companies resolve the issues. Yeah, I'm sure you have more to add. So thanks. Yeah, well, I mean, I I kind of agree with your statement that that. A lot should depend on how how an organization or company responds, and uh, but this really is a, is a tough one, and it's maybe interesting in in starting to remind oneself what the legal 
the legal state of software is. The legal state is actually much more closer to a book that somebody's written than than to a machine that somebody's built. And I think it originally came out is when, when people started to think about what is this legally. They looked at code and they said, oh, it's something, it looks like music scores. So we're going to use the same regime, which is intellectual property. And and with intellectual property, you know, that works for software. You cannot steal software, period. And now, unlike with music, uh, software can actually break stuff. And especially if the software governs devices that, that then have an impact or if they govern access to something. And that there is a challenge, but it's not as easy to say as saying just, oh, if you have mistakes and then you're responsible for the effects because, first of all, manufacturers don't really know how customers are going to use this stuff. This is really... I mean, you mentioned Windows NT, which is, has been supported for 20 years. I, I'm convinced there's a gazillion critical infrastructures that still run under Windows NT. So mm-hmm. is that really Microsoft's problem? And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So we have to come to grips with this. It's a, the Cyber Resilience Act, in fact, demands that uh, that digital products have an expiry date, which is one way to handle this. They say, okay, a manufacturer is responsible for a certain amount of time, and then then it's your fault. I think the question with software is just so much more complex than with anything else because it is such a universal thing. You build a car to do one thing, namely that's drive, transport people from, from A to B. But software can do pretty much anything. You build an operating system, you run a space station on this, you run your toaster on this, you run your toothbrush on this stuff. I mean, if you look at Linux, it's pretty much in anything. And who owns Linux? There's not even a company that owns Linux. It's uh, We don't really know. So this really is a challenging thing. And I think I think what we probably need is, is a little more kind of thinking about what is it we want to achieve and how can we achieve this? I think this linear thinking of, okay, this person wrote a piece of code and it was that piece of code that made a mistake then then caused this effect. That's just too short-sighted is not going to work in such a complex environment. I don't have a solution to that. And again, I think uh, here's where I really feel like Switzerland has the right stance and that it says we really need to continue clarifying these issues. We need this discussion to to be ongoing. There is no simple answers to this. And and I think, well, obviously there is simple answers, but they're not going to call it. And and I'm actually thinking that the Geneva Dialogue is one little tiny piece in this puzzle that it helps us to come to clarity because in the Geneva Dialogue, we have these people from various different stakeholder groups that bring in, in their thoughts so that we can develop a better picture of our roles and responsibilities. Thank you so much for your both. Um, that's really so much comprehensive overview of the different challenges. There's so much to explore further. Before wrapping up, I just wanted to give one more time to each of you, maybe to wrap up with some concluding remarks, uh, both either on a pessimistic or more optimistic note. I'll, I'll go first because I'll be short, and I and I want to give Serge the, all the credit anyway because he, he he's really shown a lot of leadership, not not just in the industries he's worked at, but across across many ecosystems and 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 many many different type environments. I'm an optimist. I, I firmly believe that humans are going to succeed. That there's good in all of us, and and I've seen great strides in in software security. 
the standard best practices work all the time, you know, and, and companies are evolving and taking advantage of them. Um, the complexity of it for a successful attack has gotten way, way more difficult for the bad guys. You know, you don't hear about grandmothers being ransomware any longer. It's not making the news because most of that gets filtered out through automation, through machine learning, and uh, and and by educating users. You know, to to not click on links or something like that because that's still the most the most common way for an individual to be heard is that we accidentally give away our password to the wrong person or something like that. So 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 I believe in humanity. I and thank you for having us, Anastasia. And I will hand I'll hand it to Serge to um, give his feedback, which I I I kind of I'm, I share this optimistic view. When I usually give one of my doom and gloom cybersecurity talks, and people always ask me, "You're still doing e-banking?" And I am doing e-banking. So I'm reasonably confident. I do think, however, that we have some challenges facing society and, and also kind of the community of states. Uh, this is these are serious problems and we have to tackle them and it's it's one of the many serious problems there's others that that are equally big and i do think that people have to come to grips with it's i think we can find solution but they're not going to be for free and it needs some work to to be done but i think it is doable that's truly inspiring i i will call it that they actually quite realistic realistic slash optimistic view which i really like um, so that wraps our today's episode and learning more about security and cyberspace. I hope our listeners, viewers, find some insights or save some info for Googling this later. Thank you so much for um, this conversation to our great guests uh, for sharing these views. I think the views that we have touched again reminded personally to me that cyberspace and cybersecurity is so multifaceted. There's so much to explore really on different fronts. Now uh, we need different people to be for tackling all these issues, right? So thank you for being here as well and for listening to us. If you'd like to learn more about the Geneva Dialogue and that's work for the past five years and this year, please visit our webpage uh, or reach out directly. We'll leave the contact info in the description. And um, that's all. Thank you, everyone. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.